Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. In November of this year, the 195 countries that are part of the Paris climate process will hold their annual summit in Glasgow, Scotland. At the talks, countries are expected to announce more aggressive greenhouse gas reduction targets. The new targets will come in the wake of recent reports from the U.N. and others that highlight both the dangers of a warming climate and the inadequacy of current efforts to keep warming to a minimum. Yet concern is rising over whether the vital goals of the Glasgow conference can be met. Recently, at the COP25 summit in Madrid in December, countries remained far apart on a few key rules to guide implementation of the Paris Agreement going forward. What's more... 2020 could prove to be a year of climate limbo as the world awaits the outcome of the U.S. presidential election that will likely determine whether the United States returns to the Paris process and resumes a leadership role in it. Here to talk about the current status of the Paris climate process and what we might expect as 2020 unfolds is Andrew Light. Andrew is a distinguished senior fellow in the Global Climate Program at the World Resources Institute and a university professor at George Mason University. Andrew also formerly worked for the U.S. State Department, where he served on the senior strategy team for U.N. climate negotiations and U.S. participation in the Paris Agreement. Andrew, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Andy. It's great to be back. Andrew, you were last on the podcast two years ago, and in the time since, two major meetings of the Paris climate process have taken place, one in Poland in 2018 and just last December, the most recent meeting in Madrid. What were the open issues two years ago that the most recent meetings intended to address? Basically two buckets of issues that had to be addressed this year. One is goes by the term of finishing the rule book, and that's kind of the collective term that we use for all of the different rules and procedures and stuff to make it possible to implement the various articles under the Paris Agreement. So there's an article on transparency, there's an article on forests, there was an article on adaptation, and kind of on and on, finance and other things. And so the Paris Agreement goes so far to sort of outlining where we were and how we settled the negotiations in 2015, but there were details that needed to be flushed in. And the other big bucket was basically sending some kind of signal to countries that this is the first year under the Paris Agreement where they should look to enhance their initial commitments under the Paris Agreement. So the Paris Agreement has these ongoing cycles of commitments to achieve the ultimate temperature goals under Paris. 2020 is the first year when parties are expected to enhance their original commitments under Paris, so we will get closer to meeting those temperature goals under the agreement. Let let me stop you here and ask a question. So the Paris Agreement has already been in effect for several years, four years or so. How is it possible that it's been in effect for four years without the rules already in place? Well, great question. And effectively, what happened was you know, when we finished the Paris Agreement in 2015, we kind of, it's really a very detailed, think of it as a very detailed outline of what a globe, a new global regime on dealing with climate change is going to work and how countries are going to report to the convention, the Framework Convention on Climate Change, and to the other parties under the Paris Agreement that they are meeting their commitments under Paris and then setting up all these mechanisms to ratchet up those commitments under time. So in the sort of, you can only, you've only got two weeks to finish those negotiations during any given year. Um, we got 
the sort of the basis of it done in, in 2015, but there are these details. And so the agreement, and this is true for just about every other international agreement, allows for a period of a few years to fill in the gaps and the procedures on that. And so different working groups were formed on different pillars, right, of the Paris Agreement that were led usually by, you know, some combination of a developed country and a developing country to work through and negotiate with parties the details of that. It's pretty typical. It is a long process. And actually, Poland was really successful in finishing almost all of it. There were just a couple of things that were left over to finish this year or this past year in Madrid. Um, most of it actually was done in a very complicated set of negotiations last year in Poland. Now, those couple of things that you just alluded to uh, related specifically to the rules around uh, carbon markets, as well as something called loss and damage. What are these specifically, and why have they proven so hard to agree upon? Those were definitely two of the, the, the remaining sticking, point, sticking points. The one on carbon markets is basically this. I mean, it's already the case that there are lots of countries that are engaged in some kind of you know, transboundary carbon trading right now. And it's been going on for decades where one country will, will set a target for reducing its emissions into the future. It, uh, if it's a country um, which is a wealthy developed country, let's say like New Zealand, it might want to pay for cheaper reductions in another country, um, let's say a forest-rich country like Indonesia or Brazil or something like that, and they will pay to uh, sequester carbon by reducing deforestation or increasing afforestation by planting trees, engaging in some kind of restoration program. And that can be cheaper than the cost for reducing emissions at home. And that's allowable under these international trading systems. So what happened in Paris is that we created finally, a kind of an internationally recognized credit uh, for, for that trading system to try to harmonize that process around the world. Essentially, what happened was um, one of the biggest recipients of these kinds of credits, Brazil, came forward and essentially wanted to adopt rules which would allow for double counting. So let's say New Zealand pays Brazil to, uh, to, to save some part of the Amazon rainforest and buys credits uh, to do that. Uh, which, as, which they then register internationally as how they're going to hit their target under the Paris Agreement. Brazil wanted to say, in addition to crediting New Zealand, you should also credit us for reducing our emissions. And that would be a form of double counting, and that basically undermines the whole point of, of carbon trading and these kinds of offset markets. So that's a problem. The loss and damage stuff is a, is a little bit more complicated, but briefly, this is a kind of a new, really interesting area of climate negotiations that emerged around 2010, 2011, and it deals with climate impacts that you can't adapt to. So two big buckets of it are things like uh, slow onset events, rising sea levels, where there's just so much you can do in terms of building up walls and building up infrastructure to withstand rising sea levels, especially in these small island developing states, like let's say the Marshall Islands in the Pacific. And then there are extreme events that we can imagine, like the hurricane, devastating hurricane that hit Bermuda this past season in the fall. Imagine Bermuda gets two or three more of those, and it might be just impossible to imagine rebuilding infrastructure like they had before to withstand those kinds of impacts. And that counts as something that, in principle, just the, the economic hurdles are too high to really adapt to. So this is, a, this is called loss and damage, so the kinds of losses to climate that you can't adapt to. And one of the things that's been a sticking point on that has been whether or not you could, we should create a special bucket of finance for loss and damage. And while we did create 
uh, as part of the process of leading up to the Paris Agreement and, and creating the Paris Agreement, a new system that deals with loss and damage and a new cooperative effort to try to come up with lots of measures to try to mitigate uh, these kinds of loss and damage impacts before they happen and then try to help countries after they've happened by creating, for example, pooled insurance and stuff like that. There's no dedicated bucket of money out there to help countries on that. Uh, and so the parties kind of ran aground in Madrid on whether or not they were going to be able to create some kind of dedicated form of finance for, do, for do loss you, and damage. Do you see these two issues being resolved before Glasgow? And can Glasgow uh, move forward meaningfully without these, these, these things being resolved? And particularly on the carbon trading side, my understanding yeah. is that many of the countries, some half or, or more, plan to use uh, carbon carbon markets to, you know, really is a central part of their strategy to reach their carbon reduction goals. Well, I think the pressure will be on. And one of the things we saw was on the last Saturday of the Madrid meeting, you know, after you'd gone through the full two weeks of negotiations, 32 countries came forward with a joint statement on how firm they're going to stand and with resist any kind of diminishment of the rigor and robustness of the rules around carbon trading, at least for the Paris Agreement. So I think they've drawn a hard red line, and I think that the pressure is going to be on Brazil and the other countries that were supporting them in, their, in these positions, like Australia was supporting Brazil and Madrid. I think it's going to be very difficult for them to withstand that kind of international pressure. So I'm hopeful that by the time we get to Glasgow, that will be resolved. Uh, on the other hand, though, keep in mind that you, you know carbon trading and offset programs will continue regardless of what happens with this particular part of the Paris Agreement. It's just they won't be internationally harmonized. But I think that those markets are still big, they're still growing, they're still important, and as you said, many countries are going to rely on them in order to meet their commitments under Paris. It would be better if they were all operated the same way. Um, if they don't for some amount of time, though, I, I think that they can still continue in trying to develop those different initiatives. Okay, Andrew, so Paris has been in effect for four years now. Uh, how well have countries done generally in meeting their initial commitments to reduce carbon emissions? So, I mean, I think, like, let's just take a few countries. I mean, China is on track to meet its commitments under the its initial commitments under Paris Agreement. So is India. Um, the EU is certainly on track. Canada, you know, is is going to have a hard time to meet its targets because they were they initially their target was pretty was put forward by the previous conservative government, and then right before Paris, Justin Trudeau was elected. He kind of let stand the the Canadian target for 2030, but you know, he's now has initiated a national carbon pricing scheme, which I think is going to get them there. So countries are doing pretty well. But those collective commitments, however, are not sufficient to meet the ultimate temperature goals under Paris, that two degree and making every effort to hit 1.5 C degree. And that's why you need like this, this constant ambition to come forward. And I'd say in that respect, like the outcome in Madrid was okay. You know, I think the language was good that came out of Madrid in terms of encouraging countries to come forward and enhance their ambition. The, um, the secretariat uh, 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 of the Framework Convention just released new numbers. And at right now, it looks like um, while only two countries have actually submitted their new enhanced target under the Paris Agreement in 2020, um, 108 have stated their intention to enhance their ambition. And we think these are, these are 
good you know promises. This will happen. They represent about about fifth, just over 15 percent of global emissions, and 37 other countries have stated their intention to update their uh, their commitments by uh, uh, in 2020. But some of the biggest emitters are not included there, like the United States, obviously, because the United States is going to pull out of the Paris Agreement. But also, we don't know yet what China or India are going to do in terms of reducing their emissions. We, Russia is a huge question mark. We don't know Russia, what Russia is going to do. Canada has not uh, announced any kind of intention. Brazil has not. Australia has not. You know, and so there are big countries out there in the top, in your top 10, 20 emitters who have not yet said what they're going to do. And that's what everyone's going to be watching between now and Glasgow. You were a part of the State Department team that negotiated U.S. involvement in the Paris Agreement back in 2015. What was your reaction when President Trump announced that the U.S. would withdraw from Paris? Well, I, was, I expected it. Uh, it was nonetheless a really bad day, um, um, and I think it was a bad day for Amer- the American people. It was a bad day for the world. You know, I, 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 have, I have joked, but it's not so far from the truth, that I think I worked about as hard outside of government, trying to keep the Trump administration from leaving the Paris Agreement, as I did working to create the Paris Agreement when I was part of the Obama administration, there was a huge effort to just figure out any way you could try to get to President Trump between the inauguration um, in 2017 and June 1st, 2017, when he made the announcement in the Rose Garden that he was going to pull the United States out of the Paris Agreement. So, so it, it, was, it, it was a blow. Um, the, the interesting thing, though, I got to say, is that, is that immediately two things happened um, for reasons that are still a little bit obscure. The Trump administration decided to withdraw from the Paris Agreement according to the rules of the Paris Agreement. And the rules of the Paris Agreement are uh, that you can't just get out of the Paris Agreement by just saying, we're out. Um, it, it's, a, it's a three plus one system. So Essentially, the Paris Agreement says no country can withdraw from the agreement for the first three years after the agreement enters into force. Uh, and entry into force is when you go from the negotiating phase, which I was part of, to, you know, the agreement goes back to national capitals and they use whatever their mechanism is for joining an international agreement to do it, a vote of parliament or the president signs it or whatever. Um, so, so, the, so no country could, can leave in the first three years, and that's actually pretty typical in agreements like this because it's kind of a cooling-off period because it can get very, you know, as it was in Paris. There were some really critical, very tense moments up until the very, very end there. Uh, then we got it across the finish line. Everyone was quite happy. But, you know, so not every country got exactly what they wanted as part of the agreement. Um, and so there's a three-year cooling-off period. The Trump administration adhered to that. So they only just submitted their intention to withdraw from the Paris Agreement this past November 4th, November 4th, 2019, just a few months ago. And then the agreement says after that, it takes one year to get out of the Paris Agreement. So on November 4th, the State Department communicated to the U.N. Secretary General the U.S. intends to exercise its withdrawal uh, prerogative under the Paris Agreement. And then so November 4th of, of this year, one day after the U.S. election, the U.S. will finally be out. Now, in between that time, since 2017, when President Trump announced he was going to get to Paris, a couple things have happened. Number one is the Paris Agreement has actually gotten more popular rather than less popular. Um, Are you talking about the domestically in the U.S.? Yeah. So if you look at the polling and support for um, either the Paris Agreement by name or an international agreement on climate change, it's gone steadily up since 2017. 
and now what, what and including over 50% of people who identify as republicans why is that the case i think because people get it that the only way you can take on a global problem like climate change is with a global cooperative solution um, and you know i mean the, it's, you know if you if you dig in, in even if you sort of like dig into it deeper among sort of experts on this issue most uh, republicans who work on climate change like Dave Banks, who was President Trump's first senior director in the National Security Council and the National Economic Council um, for Environment and Energy. So this is the guy, like in the white, extended White House, you know, executive office of the president, who's responsible for stuff like this. He lasted about one year in the Trump administration. His ex- he kind of did, you know, an exit interview, as it were, with the New York Times when he left. He says, like, look, this is a perp- the Paris Agreement is is a perfect. You know, re- agreement for Republicans, because it does make all countries of the world operate by the same rules. So you've got these sort of thought leaders out there among Republicans who say it was a good agreement, who wanted the president to stay in, and then people just get it because that the idea that you need a global agreement to deal with a global problem. And the second thing that's happened, and, and it would be great if we can go into this, is that the you know, you've seen this huge movement of states and cities and business leaders in the United States to come forward and say, and the, the phrase that they've ado- all adopted, we are still in. We are still in with respect to the United States' original commitments to the Paris Agreement. And so while June 1st, 2017, when President Trump announced this, was a very bad day for me, and I remember exactly where I was and what I was doing, and, you know, it was, it was, it was very hard to sort of see that happen, though we saw the writing on the wall that we were kind of losing that fight. The, the upswell of... Um, of enthusiasm from ordinary folk to, you know, uh, to, to climate leaders at the state and local and business level has been extraordinary and really, really quite encouraging. You know, I do want to get into that issue of city and state involvement in the Paris process. But before that, I want to talk about 2020 for just a moment. At the end of this year, there's going to be U.S. presidential election. Uh, the U.S.'s future involvement in Paris uh, in the Paris process will hinge upon the results of that election. Is it possible that as we're waiting to see what happens, what the outcome of the election is, nothing much will happen in terms of the Paris process this year? We'll be essentially in limbo awaiting the election's outcome. I think that many countries are, are going to go ahead and move forward with their plan under the schedule of the Paris Agreement to look to enhancing their existing commitments which are mostly out to 2030 right now, so we'll be looking to enhance that. Some countries have already committed to doing that. They won't wait. We're not going to be able to tell like what's happening behind closed doors to what extent is the fact that people don't know the outcome of the U.S. election determining how ambitious they're going to be. That's just going to be one of the questions we'll really probably never know the answers to for most parties. Um, but then, yes, yeah, some countries are probably going to be waiting, and there will be voices who want to, who are not as in favor of aggressive action on climate change, who will use the United States as, a, uh, United States as an excuse not to do anything until we see whether the U.S. is going to re-engage globally. Okay, so let's look at the scenarios. Let's say Trump loses the election. How quickly does the U.S. re-engage the Paris process? The, 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 the earliest the U.S. can formally re-engage in Paris would be Inauguration Day, right? Uh, so January 2021, and that would be the first day a new president can, under the rules of the Paris Agreement, again, you know, 
communicate to the UN Secretary General that the United States is going to rejoin the Paris Agreement, and the agreement says, you know, in 30 days you're back in. A couple different, you know, a couple different caveats on that. You know, I would be interested to sort of see, like, if uh, President Trump loses, and I mean, I hate to say it, <laughs> but let's assume we know who the president is by the time <laughs> the Glasgow summit starts, right? I mean, let's not rule out that we could have a contested election. Uh, I hope it's not as bad as 2000, but I foresee that as a possibility. Um, but if we know that the, the President Trump is not, you know, uh, 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 president by the time the Glasgow um, uh, UN climate summit starts on November 9th, you know, a new president could send an emissary. They could go themselves. I mean, I, I wouldn't wouldn't be uh, out of the question. But I think probably would probably want to send a signal saying the United States is back in. You know, our system doesn't allow us to rejoin until I'm inaugurated, something like that. On the other side of it, though, every country that's part of the Paris Agreement has to have a commitment in good standing under the Paris Agreement. And the way that the kind of the rules of Paris work out is that by the time of inauguration in 2021, the United States will have already been overdue by one year to submit its next commitment under Paris to 2030. Our original commitment was to 2025. We're one of the only countries where our original commitment under Paris was to 2025. So we were supposed to, during 2020, submit a commitment to 2030. Obviously, this administration is not going to do that. So in relatively short order, a new president who has, you know, rejoined the Paris Agreement is going to have to come up with a new commitment. And it can't just be a number. You know, you can't just sort of say, oh, I'm going to spend $10 trillion and decarbonize the American economy by 2030 and write that on a piece of paper and send it in. The rules of Paris are very, very strict on this. So you have to provide what's called ex-ante information. You have to provide detailed information on how you're going to hit whatever your target is by 2030. Uh, and so, you know, this has got to be something where you've got to see that the president is able to make a case that they've got a plan through either a regulatory path or some kind of deal that could be worked through Congress or building on what the states and cities and the private sector has done in the United States to deliver on a, on a pledge. So, you know, I, 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 would, I don't want to make this an exact thing, but I'd sort of say, Within six months or so, there's got to be a pretty good indication that the United States is well along, if not finished, with creating a new commitment under the Paris Agreement. Let, let me ask you this question, if I may. Let's just say for a moment that Trump gets reelected. The yep. United States uh, is out of Paris for the foreseeable future. Um, the United States, in its negotiations uh, at the time leading up to the, the signing of the Paris Accord five years ago, obviously had certain priorities. I'd love to hear your uh, uh, view on what those priorities, number one, were, and number two, without the United States as part of the Paris Agreement, other countries will take over leadership. I'm thinking about countries such as China, India. Those are the obvious ones. How might their priorities take precedence in, in, in the future absent the U.S., and how might that change the, uh, the way Paris evolves going forward? Well, I, I, that's a, a great question. And, and I'd sort of say that, you know, number one, one of our biggest priorities, and again, this, is a, this was a priority not only of the Obama administration, but of the Bush administration, um, 
the Clinton administration and, and the prior, the George H.W. Bush administration, we wanted to create an agreement where countries played by the same rules. Um, I mean, back in 1992, if you look at the Framework Convention on Climate Change, it really kind of looks very much like, and there's direct language in this that people point to, which sort of says, developed countries, you caused this problem, so you've got to come up with a solution. And I think it is certainly the case that uh, developed and richer countries need to do more. We have been polluting for a lot longer uh, than even the biggest developing countries, so that enhances our obligations. But at the same time, the bulk of emissions in the world right now are not coming from the developed world. They're coming from the developing world, and that will continue to be in the future. China is already the biggest emitter. Um, it is rising rapidly in terms of per capita emissions. will be eclipsing Europe. Um, it will probably sometime in this decade become the biggest historical emitter of greenhouse gases. Uh, and you kind of look at the top 20 emitters, um, which is basically the countries of the G20. Most of them are developing countries. And so you can't imagine any solution to this problem which suggests that only developed countries are going to reduce or be the ones to reduce their emissions because there's no way you would actually get to the kinds of reductions in emissions that would be that would get you uh, to enough to hit the temperature targets under the Paris Agreement. So we achieved that in Paris. We got countries to play by the same rules. But this tension between developed and developing countries um, that started in 1992 and or just prior when we started negotiating the Framework Convention on Climate Change is still there, and it pops up. And it popped up in Madrid. I mean, there was there was a there was a push by a collection of developing countries in Madrid saying that really what we needed to do because there was a prior part of these negotiations that dealt with pre 2020 ambition, so ambition before 2020, and we really need to fix you know the problem with what countries committed to do before 2020 not talk about how we're going to increase our ambition, say, by 2030. And, I mean, it was just, it's kind of a mess and not kind of worth going into, but it was one of these places where, again, you know, that old divide, right, of a firewall, imagined firewall between the obligations of developed and developing countries popped up and really threatened to derail things. With the United States out of the picture, you know, it's harder to maintain this, this, this new regime that we created in Paris, where every, all countries are playing by the same rules, though they still get to set their own targets. And that allows them to self-differentiate, like allows them every country to decide what they think their fair contribution to the solution is. So, so that's a big problem. And I think if the United States, if President Trump gets another term, I, I think that's just going to continue to erode. The, the biggest party other than the United States to try to enforce that kind of outcome that we got in Paris is the European Union. And the European Union is a very complicated institution, you know. I mean, it's not one country deciding with one prime minister or one president, uh, you know, and their foreign minister what their negotiating position is going to be. It's a whole bunch of countries deciding together what their common negotiating position is. And just by its very nature, it makes it harder for them to toe a really strong line on some of these things that happen in in, uh, in in these negotiations, um, Australia unfortunately I think is probably you know vying for the United States with respect to having a government that wants to be intransigent in the face of climate change. So they're not much help right now, and so you just kind of look around the world and there's kind of not a lot of developed country parties that really want to are going to try to push that consensus position we got to in 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 Paris. 
there, there is a vacuum. Vacuum's already been created, I mean, I think, in terms of leadership, and China has stepped into that leadership position because China and the U.S. were instrumental together in creating the Paris Agreement. I mean, the, the, the great breakthrough in the history of these negotiations still is November 2014, when President Obama and President Xi of China uh, jointly announced in Beijing their initial commitments under the Paris Agreement over a year before we actually started the final negotiations in 2015. And that broke, that really signaled a breaking of this historical tension between developed and developing country, uh, countries over this issue. So the United States is out, but China is still one of the chief architects of that consensus to find this great middle ground is still there. I think the problem, though, is that, you know, it's really difficult for any country at this point other than the United States to push China on much of anything. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we're doing that right now in a trade deal, but we're certainly not doing that on climate change. Um, and, you know, at the same time, while China is making great inroads towards reducing its emissions consistent with its current target under Paris, they're engaged in the world's biggest global development program we've ever seen. Um, it's called the Belt and Road Initiative. If it fully emerges, um, as it's been described by the Chinese government, I mean, it would be over 40 times bigger than the Marshall Plan that the United States did after World War II. So we're talking this massive development program in Africa, in Europe, and Latin America. And so far, if you look at the energy infrastructure that they are building in other countries, a lot of it is coal or oil. Um, and Who's going to stand up to China on that? And China's engaged in an internal process, you know, on greening this Belt and Road Initiative. And I hope that they do. Um, and my organization is working with them on this. But the, the, the question remains, like, in the absence of a big uh, peer country like the United States pushing them, will they go fast enough towards decarbonizing their own economy and also decarbonizing their global development strategy. Well, it sounds like so, China has a lot of economic interest, obviously, in making that happen, right? So that, that, would, that would definitely complicate things. It would complicate things. And I mean, you know, and I, mean I think and I was just in China in November, and you know, one of the things you can sort of see how these things pop up, the United States is the most convenient excuse right now for intransigence. So there were people sort of saying to me, uh, look, uh, it's going to be really difficult for us in China to enhance our target in the Paris Agreement in the midst of a trade war with the United States. You know? and, and I would sort of say, all right, uh, uh, okay, I understand it's really difficult, but like, let's look at where the world is going and how it's not in your interest to slow down and how much we need you right now to step up. But, but uh, maybe you know, we've, we've eliminated an excuse with the current hiatus in the trade deal, which was just announced in the last week, but how long will that hold? And what's going to be the next excuse that's created by the United States in this whole process? Andrew, you were talking a little earlier about the movement of cities and states here in the United States to engage Paris regardless of what happens at a national uh, level, regardless of whether we stay in or, or get out uh, after, after the election. Um, can cities and states effectively serve as a proxy for U.S. federal participation in the Paris process? So the, so the answer is yes and no. Uh, on the one hand, yes, um, states and cities in the private sector can meaningfully contribute to the reduction of emissions in the United States. And if you want a one-stop place to look at the, the data on this, um, there's a series of reports 
that are called America's Pledge. The third one was just released at the Madrid Climate Summit in December. And what it does is it's a, it's the World Resources Institute does it with the Rocky Mountain Institute and the University of Maryland and a few other partners. And we count up everything that's verifiable, that's real. I mean, not just a kind of a hot air, like here's our greenwashing, you know, thing that we're saying that we're going to do to reduce our emissions, but really countable policies and measures, real measures to reduce emissions. We count them all up and add them all up together. Um, and so let's talk about the footprint first and the impact. So since the president has announced his withdrawal from Paris in June of 2017, over 3,500 states and cities and businesses and uh, tribes, churches, universities, all kinds of actors have come together and made meaningful pledges to reduce their emissions. If they were one country, they would be the second largest economy in the world. So it represents 68% of, the U of U.S. GDP, 65% of the U.S. population, and 51% of greenhouse gas emissions. So... The United States would be the largest is, a, is the largest economy in the world. These U.S. non-federal actors committed to Paris are, would be the second largest economy, and then China would be third. And that's actually increased over time. So since the midterm elections last year, we've seen a bunch of states join this coalition. Uh, and the state version of this is called the U.S. Climate Alliance. So that's the organization just of the governors who are committed to this. So that's now about half of the states in the United States are now part of the U.S. Climate Alliance. And you kind of add up, well, what does this mean? Are they reducing their emissions? Are they doing stuff? And, and they are. And so the Last America's Pledge Report projects that by 2030, that collection of states and cities and businesses and other actors will achieve emission reductions of 25% by 2030. Now, let's you know, put this in, in, in perspective. The original U.S. pledge under Paris was to reduce our emissions 26 to 28% below 2005 levels by 2025. This collection of non-federal actors um, can reduce emissions 25 percent by 2030. So, you know, we are, that is not hitting the U.S. target. So in, in answer to your first question, you know, can they backfill? Not really, not all the way. Now, in this last America's Pledge report, we articulate a scenario where they could, these actors could enhance their ambition, and we think they can get something like 37 percent um, by 2030 in terms of reductions in emissions, and that's much better. And then we also articulate a scenario of if you had even modest federal reengagement, you can get to close to 50% in emission reductions. But let's just stick with the 37% now. So that's, that's quite good. Imagine, and these are states, especially the leaders are California, Washington State, New York State, you know, those states and some of the bigger cities, if they can really turn the crank a little bit, they can get pre pretty good by 2030. It's not enough, but it's much better than what you would imagine would happen if the federal government were essentially steering the wheel of, 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 of U.S. climate policy by itself. Do yeah. these states exercise the same power, the same balancing power that we were talking about a few minutes ago that, you know, a, a federally agreed upon U.S. involvement in Paris would, would bring? No, they don't. So that's so, so when I said to your answer, your original question, yes and no, I mean, they can backfill partially with respect to their measures to reduce emissions against the backdrop of the original U.S. pledge under Paris, but they can't actually represent the United States at, at the, in, in the Paris Agreement. They cannot be parties to the agreement. The Paris Agreement is an agreement among nation states, and other countries, again, would not allow uh, some kind of amendment to the Paris Agreement so that 
non non national actors or non state actors were members of it. They can register. There's a there's a mechanism that was originally created by the French government when we negotiated Paris for these non non state actors to register what they're doing, but they can't be parties to the agreement. They can't negotiate. You know, let's say in the Article Six negotiations, the U.S. would be out of the Paris Agreement by the time that the Glasgow Climate Summit starts in, in November. That will be executed, and even if we've elected a Democrat who wants to get back in the Paris Agreement, the United States is still not going to be part of the Paris Agreement in, in November because, you know, the, the president, a new president, can't do anything uh, until uh, inauguration in 2021. So, so these not these non-federal actors can't negotiate. They can't have that power. They can they can try to cut some deals on the side. I mean, China and California have a very close relationship and do a lot of technical assistance, and so there is. Uh, some potential there. Jerry Brown, when he left uh, office as California's governor, created something called the California-China Climate Institute at UC Berkeley, um, which is thriving and building, and it's it's got a lot of potential there. But uh, you ca- just can't imagine that it's going to have the same force as as um, as as the U.S. federal government. If President Trump gets a second term, though, I think that it, there there is a big question about. What would be the next step, though, to really up the ante on what these non-federal actors in the United States are doing? So they can't be part of the Paris Agreement, but the question is, are there things they could do which would make their collective effort in the United States more meaningful and a better bulwark against the arguments in other countries that they shouldn't do anything to enhance their ambition because the United States is not doing anything. So that's really the question. Is there, is there a next step, especially those governors could take, to really try to put more skin in the game with respect to representing some kind of commitment of the United States, even if they're not negotiating at the table? Any ideas you can offer on that? Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I think that the, the one that I'm really thinking a lot about now is whether or not it would be possible for especially those governors, to 25 or so governors, to come up with a common target. I mean, right now, you know, when I sort of say uh, that these actors together could reduce emissions 25% by 2030, that's, a, that's, a, that's an analytical exercise we do in a report to count up all these measures by these different parties and then say, this is what we think it'll achieve by some date in the future. And then we come up with, you know, other model runs to figure out how you could get more reductions out of those, 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 those actors. But that's not a common target. That's not like what the United States did in 2015 when it said, we're commit to reduce our emissions 26 to 28% by 2025. So I, I believe that the, what these non-federal actors are doing in the United States would have a lot more impact internationally if they committed to a common target, and that would be complicated, that would mean a negotiation among these uh, among these governors, and and hopefully getting in some of the bigger uh, uh, cities and uh, private sector players as well to commit to achieving, let's say, 30, let's just say randomly, 30 percent reduction in emissions in the United States by 2030. And what would make it real? Well, what would make it real would not just be that they put forward a common number and they also pro- provide detailed information, like here are the policies in each of our you know, jurisdictions to achieve that, but they also said we're going to subject ourselves to the same kind of international scrutiny um, and transparency that all state parties to the Paris Agreement have currently bound themselves to. And it's, you know, this is part of the thing that we finished in the rule book. Uh, uh, the Paris Rule Book last year, when the uh, climate, UN Climate Summit was in 
was in Poland. But it would basically be these actors sort of saying, we will sub- subject ourselves to the same kind of level of outside scrutiny and evaluation to make sure that we are actually making adequate uh, progress towards our target. And I think that's, that actually becomes real in a way, even if you know, these parties aren't negotiators, <clears throat> aren't sending negotiators to you know, Glasgow to sit at the table, they could still represent something. And it would stand as a firmer argument against the naysayers in China or India or, you know, even the EU or any other party, which says that they shouldn't do more because there's nothing going on in the United States that has the same level of, of um, commitment that, 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 that these countries have committed themselves to. I think it would actually go a long way, but it would be work to, to achieve that. What important meetings will take place this year ahead of Glasgow in November? So there's a there's a couple different things that are going to happen. I mean, and and part of it's going to be signaling, and, and part of it is going to be about allied agreements that are not climate agreements, but nonetheless could still do a lot to move the needle with respect to global emissions. So one of the most important ones is next fall, you will see the next conference of the parties to the UN Convention on Biological Diversity, or what's called the CBD. Now, the the Convention on Biological Diversity was created the same year as the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. It's supposed to deal with the problem of the loss of global biodiversity. It's not been as successful in terms of achieving a global agreement that has some kind of teeth and perceptibly moves the needle on, you know, its area of concern as the Framework Convention on Climate Change. Every 10 years in this convention, they set targets for what they're going to do to try to uh, preserve the world's biodiversity. And um, they did want, they did targets 10 years ago called the Yachi targets, which uh, I think there's 15 or 20 of them. Most people who've looked at those targets, and I won't go into the details on them, have said, you know, not a great track record in terms of achieving them. The, the uh, meeting this fall is going to be in China. The Chinese really want a big win out of this in terms of their claim to some kind of global leadership on environmental issues, which they they take very seriously and is something that they want to still hold on to. Um, and <clears throat> the, the purpose of this meeting is to try to set new targets. There's a whole bunch of different components of it, but the top lines are that they want to try to create a commitment to preserve 30% of the ocean and 30% of the land and the biodiversity associated with that. And, and this, is, this is a tall order. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the, the reports coming out of Australia on the loss of of, of species there and of individual animals is just harrowing. So, I mean, there are some reports, projections that you could have lost as much of, as much as a billion animals so far from the wildfire season this year in Australia. There's some controversy over that, but let's just say it's half that. It's still a lot. And because Australia is so unique in terms of its biogeographical history and its geological history, is you've got some species that exist there and nowhere else. And so they are critically threatened by what there's a growing consensus on now is at least a climate-fueled uh, wildfire season. And so if you could actually get a hard commitment on biodiversity, I'm not saying it would stop wildfires in Australia or something like that, but it would really focus the world in a very meaningful way on biodiversity in a way that it hasn't happened before that could potentially have some climate impacts. 
The other thing that we're kind of seeing is there's going to be three big meetings over the course of this year uh, that are oceans-related. One will be a, a, a U.N. Ocean Summit, and then there's going to be a big meeting of the WTO where they're going to take up subsidies to uh, illegal um, subsidies to overfishing. And, and again, you know, the, the, the biodiversity, oceans, climate, these are overlapping areas of concern. We know that climate can make things worse in the oceans and with biodiversity, but it's also the case that improvements on biodiversity and improvements on how we manage the oceans could also potentially have uh, follow-on effects on improving our ability to deal with climate change. And so those three, which not as big, you know, on the radar of many people who are concerned about climate change, but those three meetings over the course of this year on global cooperation on oceans and ocean resource issues are really going to kind of be important. The other thing I want to point to is sort of, it's not on the solution side, it's more on the, really the, the plan B, how do you set in place a global consensus to move forward regardless of what happens with the U.S. election? So this year, the G7 is going to be held in the United States. Uh, it'll be held this summer. Um, the, wash, the, the place where the G7 is held, um, you know, the, the host country is the chair of it. The chair sets the agenda. Um, White House Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, Mulvaney has already said that climate change will not be on the agenda of the G7 this year because the United States is hosting. That's outrageous. Hmm. The G7 has actually been a leader. Uh, in previous meetings going back over a decade now on different initiatives on climate change. So the question is, do the other parties to the G7, when they come to the United States for that meeting, do they stand up to the president that he's not having climate change on the agenda, especially when they've got, you know, tens, not hundreds of thousands of people in the streets in their, in their capitals who have been protesting climate change for over a year? Or do they just go along with this ignoring this incredibly important global global crisis in the face of the intransigence of the United States. So there's a really, I, I'm going to be looking at the G7, at least symbolically, and kind of setting the tone for hopefully how leaders might respond to a re-election of President Trump and what we could expect would be another four years of the United States pulling in the opposite direction of the rest of the world. Andrew, thanks for talking. Thank you. Today's guest has been Andrew Light, Distinguished Senior Fellow in the Global Climate Program at the World Resources Institute and University Professor at George Mason University. For more discussions on climate and energy, visit the Climate Center for Energy Policy's website, where you'll find blogs, policy digests, information on our upcoming events, and yes, more than 70 archived episodes of this podcast. You can even sign up for our monthly newsletter that will bring all this content straight to your inbox. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day.